Big Country Reeves needs to rebound from what was a terrible season. Does everyone like basketball? With the second pick in the 1999 NBA draft, the Vancouver Grizzlies select Steve Francis from the University of Maryland. This is, with the second pick, Steve Francis, the jaw-droppingly niche Vancouver Grizzlies basketball podcast. I'm Jeremy Allingham. We're on to our second game of the 1997-98 season. The Vancouver Grizzlies are on the road to take on Grant Hill and the Pistons in Detroit. Bring on the action. I'm here with my co-host, the man who pays his transit fares, even when he's not riding transit at all. It's Justin McElroy. How you doing, Justin? I just love trains so much, almost as much as, almost as, much as watching bad 90s basketball. Jeremy, how are you doing? Not too bad, man. We are going back, hearkening back to November 30th, 1997. It's the Vancouver Grizzlies visiting the Detroit Pistons at the Palace at Auburn Hills. And I just got to stop right there and start out by saying, when I was a kid, whenever I would hear the Palace at Auburn Hills, I was like ooing and aahing of like, man, I can't believe that basketball team gets to play at a Palace and all their fans get to go watch them. It sounds so fancy. It's like one of those apartments from the 1960s that has a regal name and then a regal name under it, right? Um, uh, In reality, uh, the Detroit Pistons are anything but great to watch at this point in their team's history. This is the Grant Hill era where it is more losing seasons than winning seasons. And for the Grizzlies, who at this point are 6-11 on the season, and the Pistons 6-10, they got to go in here thinking they got a little bit of a chance. A chance indeed at 6-11, and 11, get this, the Vancouver Grizzlies are off to their best start in franchise history. Woo! Here we go, boys. 6-11. and 11. But in other, cons- uh, other more concerning news, they're 1-9 and nine on the road and are coming off four straight road losses where they've lost by an average of 20 points per game. They lost by 20 to the Knicks. 19 to the Bucks, 21 to the Pacers, and 19 to the Timberwolves. Nothing if not consistent. During this stretch, Justin, they're scoring 84.5 points per game. So very, very tough times in Grizzlies land. The Pistons are 6-10 and 10 coming off a win against the New York Knicks. And this is the thing always with these false hope starts that Vancouver had is that you would look at their wins and they would be very close and you would look at their losses and they would be very big and they would often be a harbinger for the season to come. But when it's early the season and you're on pace to win more than 30 games on the year, you can be optimistic or you can delude yourself into optimism and the Grizzlies do this. Uh, We'll talk about the lineups in a second, but I want to first just take... 45 seconds to talk about how every NBA team, it seemed in the 90s, used CGI for the first time in their opening graphics. And the Pistons, they're all vaguely insane, but the Pistons have this weird combination of a car and a horse that shoots lasers at the Vancouver Grizzlies logo that then like wobbles around and sort of dies. It is disturbing both because of the quality of the graphics being low, but also, again, just a little bit mean to the Grizz, as all these teams like to do. (laughs) 
Yeah, and I mean, it's funny because, yeah, you talk about our first game against Dallas where they have the hype man come out and trash talk him, and they're like, you're going home with the loss, Vancouver. And now we've got the Pistons shooting freaking lasers at the Vancouver Grizzlies logo. And it's almost like the NBA and the teams and the franchises and the marketing departments in the 90s were starting to like dip their toe in like trash talk being okay or something like that. And I definitely did notice that... Uh, that laser show that uh, shot our poor Grizz to, to smithereens. But also something of note for this game is we are into the black jersey era for the Vancouver Grizzlies. They are wearing the black jersey with the teal and red piping, those kind of like long, almost like um, horror movie letter, mm-hmm, um, Vancouver mm-hmm. white on the front. As I think someone, one of our Twitter followers put it best, these are mid. These are absolutely yes. mid. They are completely underwhelming. And even more so when you're used to that white, when you're used to that teal, those gorgeous jerseys, like there's not much to speak. I mean, they're not, are they bad? Would you call them bad? I wouldn't quite go as far to call them bad, but relatively they're bad, but they are just completely average. Nothing to speak of. It's more that I associate the original jerseys with nostalgia. And I associate the black jerseys with losing. And part of it is just how generic I think the jerseys fundamentally are. It was that time where it seemed every team decided that just dark black was what they needed to do for their road jerseys. And again, it stripped a lot of the vibrancy out of the original scheme. They just sort of grafted on the black to that original thing they were trying to do. It doesn't do it for me. It doesn't do it for you. Maybe it doesn't for someone out there. Um, But the Grizzlies go into this game against Detroit with this being debuted for the one of the first times with a lineup that we saw similar to Dallas for the first game we covered this year. Otis Thorpe, Brian Reeves, Sharif Rahim, and Tio Daniels. But Anthony Peeler is injured now. He'll never play another game for the Grizzlies. And in his place at shooting guard, Sam Mack. And you are shaking your head. For legitimate reasons. Oh, just, just you know, sad to see the Peeler era end. And uh, considering he started following me again on Instagram this week. <laughs> but um, moving on to the Detroit starters, we've got Brian Williams, who later became known as Bison Deli. Uh, we've got Don Reed, Grant Hill, Joe Dumars, Lindsey Hunter, and coach Doug Collins. So uh, a bit of a mishmash there, and we'll talk more about Brian Williams in just a second. But uh, like you said, this is a squad eminently beatable for the Grizzlies. And it turns out in the early going that the Grizzlies are the ones, as always, eminently beatable. We've got a sloppy Reef and Reeves turnover. We've got Country torn up easily in the post for two. We've got Antonio Daniels bricking a three. We have him bricking another three. The Pistons make a three. And very quickly early on, it's 11-4 to Detroit. Not only is Antonio Daniels bricking shots, he picks up a charging turnover by absolutely just ramming through a Pistons defender. He picks up a palming turnover, and he's looking pretty brutal in the first quarter. Big country, looking smooth, though. He's hitting jumpers kind of all around the floor. He's starting to look like his old self. Also, newsflash, Justin, from the announcers, big country is from Gans, Oklahoma. And Justin, (laughs) it's a really small town. He could probably buy that town, Justin. Reeves comes from Gans, Oklahoma, a town still without a stoplight. (laughs) And a town population now of 232. 
Suffice to say, he's the uh, town hero. He's the man. Certainly. In game. Heck, he's so rich now, he could buy the town. I, I imagine he could. I am so tired of that one, man. <laughs> it Holy. is season three. It's season three. Also, they announced that he lost 25 pounds and that, quote, he hit the weights finally. So we're just getting the greatest hits of lazy announcers giving their 10 anecdotes about him over and over again. But then we get a little bit of wrinkle in the talking about country game from the announcers because Scott Pollard comes into the game and they have a little matchup that they want to tell you about. Yeah, Scott Pollard, Scott with one T, he's got kind of like the Elvis Presley chops, and we know he'll go on to be kind of like that um, that kind of crazy hair guy, crazy hair white guy who plays for a while in, in, uh, in the NBA. And Scott Pollard has a little anecdote of how he shut down country and held him scoreless in the last matchup he played against them when it was Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma State against Kansas. I have to tell you, um, old NCAA college box scores are actually harder to come by than I had had imagined. I looked for this game to make sure this was true. I'm sure it was. But um, yeah, the last time they played was before, of course, country was drafted into the league for the 95-96 season. And um, let's just say Scotty Pollard does not get one up on country in this game. He ends with two points, three rebounds, one assist, and a block in only 10 minutes. But let's talk about a Detroit Piston who immediately made an impact in this game and immediately got the neurons firing in a long forgotten part of my brain. I had 100% forgotten about Brian Williams, uh, later to be known as Bison Deli. Um, and when you start looking into this guy and trying to remember all the stories, this is some crazy shit. Just, just a so little First bit. of all, <laughs> this guy was like, he was a bit of an iconoclast in the NBA. Like, he was one of those guys who's supremely talented, had the body, had the heft, had some, had the skill, but didn't really care that much about basketball. Like he did it because he was excellent at it. He did it because he could make money doing it. And, you know, especially in this era of basketball, that was something that was very looked down upon. Like, why is this guy not focused? Why is basketball not his life? Well, because he did other things. He played violin. He played saxophone. He was a pilot. He dated Madonna. This guy's crazy, man. So... In 95-96, he plays for the LA Clippers, and he puts up 16, eight boards, two assists, a steal, and a block a game on better than 50% shooting. Good, good year. Then, he can't find a team at the beginning of the 96-97 season, gets signed with the Bulls at the end. He plays for the Chicago Bulls in all 19 playoff games on their way to a title, including when they play Utah in the NBA Finals. He puts up 20 minutes a game for the Bulls and even goes 16.6 boards in game three. So, you know, he signs a big contract with the Pistons heading into the season we're in now. He ends up putting up 16 and nine, one assist, one steal, one rebound on 51% shooting. But that is just where it starts to get a little bit wild. Just, he just a little. He <laughs> retires from the game of basketball at the age of 30, walks away from $36.5 million. But so, and also I should mention, he went on to, to change his name to Bison Deli, which was to honor um, his Cherokee heritage and also to honor the first slave in his family history, which is, which is really cool and really interesting. But the, this, this all, well, then it comes to a tragic end. Like it, it, it becomes this like cold case murder. I'm not like, like warning here, people. He has been missing for 20 years and it's presumed he was murdered on a boat 
by his brother who also presumably murdered his girlfriend and the, the boat's captain. And the brother went, goes on to take uh, a purposeful overdose of insulin and then dies in a California hospital. This thing is crazy. There's actually, you should, people should look it up if they, if they can. There's a Tim Keon article from ESPN from 2002 or 2003. And it's absolutely incredible. This guy's life was wild and it came to this brutal ending it's it's like hollywood stuff and in this game he's just simply seen through the lens of the announcers as a key signing a guy that might be turning the corner for them and indeed in this first quarter he goes four for four from the field is really a force out there for the pistons but uh, you know we have to talk about the grizzlies uh, a little bit here after that slow start they're keeping in it a little bit they're not getting back the pistons are doubling reef hard anytime he gets the ball tripling teaming him sometimes but he makes a circus shot near the end to cut the lead back Back to seven, back-to-back turnovers. It's a sloppy first quarter, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But the Pistons ended up 27-20. to We talked more about other things than the actual game for the first quarter because this is a hallmark of mediocre, long two, lots of turnovers, janky defense, mid-90s basketball between two mediocre teams. Yeah, I, you know, we're always digging for narratives as we watch these games and as we kind of slog through them and I have to admit I didn't have too many in that first quarter other than some of those personal stories but that leads us to a brand new segment for our first quarter break and it's called NBA time machine danger 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 okay Justin so the gist of this here is that as I watched this sloggy shitty basketball go back and forth with uh, long twos clanging off the back in front of the iron, I started thinking to myself, okay, how many of these guys could play in the NBA today, the NBA of the early 2020s? So let's go through a couple of these players and see if we can kind of come up with either just flat no and a quick reason why, or yes, I think so, and maybe like a quick analog. So we know all about our Grizzlies, so let's do a quick uh, rapid fire of the Detroit Pistons, and let's start with venerable all-star Joe Dumar still hanging on in the league at this time. So are we talking about 1997 Joe Dumars or 1990 Dumars? Because 1990s Dumar <laughs> could play. Uh, <laughs> 97 uh, is creaky cannot hit the outside shot, and uh, he would have been out of the league three years earlier at this point, given his lack of mobility. There's no way he's playing in today's NBA. Absolutely no way. I will note that he shot above 37% from three in in each of his final four seasons, but not a chance. Okay, on to the next. Don Reed, the bruiser. Don Reed. He just seemed like a plug there. That And, you know, you look at his stats, he managed to play for, what, six seasons, not uh, doing anything in this game. He's the guy that gets just swept up by speed in his first season and his last season. Oh, he wouldn't be drafted now. This is a fossil, right? This is someone, this is the type of player that just doesn't exist. Like, he was the poorest, most impoverished man's Charles Oakley. He would have no business in today's NBA. He wouldn't keep up. Not a chance. This was kind of like one of those... uh Pistons bad boy hangover like let's see if we can do that again type thing not a chance okay Grant Hill 
I mean, he he play he has the skills, right? Like this is still a, a pretty toolsy guy that can hit it from long distance, can pass as we saw with the Suns, but he never becomes a giant star. You know, part of this was right time where the Pistons needed a guy to carry the torch and part of it was the era of the NBA where those longer twos really were in vogue and there weren't a heck of a lot of athletic 6869 guys. He still plays but he basically is what we saw with the pist what we saw his role with the Suns at the end his entire career. Okay, so I have to admit like my bias here is that I think the players of today are exponentially more talented and better at the game of basketball than the players from the 1990s. I think it's not even close. I think the development systems that exist, the training, the technology, the health, the just the level that these guys are at, like the worst player in the NBA, I think today would have been a very good player in the 1990s. That's where I'm coming from on this. And Grant Hill, absolutely, of course, he would be in the NBA today. Like you said, not a star. My analog is like Harrison Barnes, maybe upside if he could reach like Andrew Wiggins level. Yeah, he, he could be a Harrison Barnes for seven, eight seasons for sure. Yeah. Okay. Brian Williams, Bison Deli. Ah, that's, I mean, does he get the breaks, right? This is the thing he, you know, the league is more open to him from a cultural standpoint today. Totally, totally. Does he develop enough of an outside shot? That to me is a big question. Does he get on a team where he gets enough minutes and can show that energy? Like Chris Boucher is a bad example in some ways, but it's that sort of like you stick him in there as a bench player, you let him run wild and you see what you get. Yeah, I was thinking maybe like, I, I agree with you, like player empowerment era. I feel like they would try to like funnel his energy and the way that he is and like empower him to be who he is rather than like this tisk tisk. This guy doesn't have the right focus. Like he's got that big body. He's got the good hands. I'm thinking like Thomas Bryant or like maybe upside an Al Horford type, which Al Horford, like that's very good. So I absolutely think he'd be in the league. You're, you're selling it. You're buying high on uh, Brian Williams this game. <laughs> the, I'm high on the Brian Williams experience. He was amazing. Uh, on to the next. Lindsey Hunter, your guy. Yeah, I th go, we talk so much these days about 3 and D. Well, that's what Hunter was. He didn't bring a lot else to the table. He didn't actually shoot a ton of threes by today's standard in the NBA, but by the late 90s, he certainly was. He was good enough to play as a key role for the Lakers championship team. He was good enough to play for the Pistons as a key bench player for their championship team and for a couple seasons after. You know, I... He, I don't think he ever becomes a consistent starter like he did for the first half of his career. But that sort of player models out pretty well today. And one I looked for as a possible comp for who's someone that's smaller, that's on the 3 and D side that gets their steals. And I thought DeLon Wright, you know, a, a guy that you can hey. stick with a lot of teams over a lot of years. Eighth night man can play 25 minutes in a clutch, but you don't really want him playing more than that. And yeah, he can play. I had DeLon Wright too, man. That's yeah. hilarious. Wow. I, had, I, had Davion, I, had, I had Davion Mitchell or DeLon Wright as kind of like that 
I mean, DeLon Wright's a little longer than, than Lindsey, but uh, that Davion Mitchell, like, pit bull, yeah. like, latches on to you, will, is everywhere on the court, just, like, making things happen. I think that's a great, great comparison there. And, of course, we don't need to get fully into the Grizzlies because we know that in our hearts they're all first-team NBAers. And Lord knows we'll go over the Lee Mayberry experience again and again and again. It's time for the second <laughs> quarter. And speaking of Lee Mayberry, we have the Bench Mob actually appearing for Vancouver in this second quarter. It is Lee Mayberry, Blue Edwards, Peak Chilcutt, George Lynch, and they are firing on all cylinders. We are actually seeing Lee Mayberry make buckets. We have two straight Peak Chilcutt long twos. Chilcutt will fire. And hit. Mayberry turned the corner. Chilcutt comes off the screen and hits him. Nice wow. looking Chilcutt comes into the game a 35% shooter from the field. Doesn't look like it on those two last strokes. We have Thorpe make a nice cut to the basket. And all of a sudden, halfway through the second, the Grizz have taken the lead on a huge run, 40-39. to 39. Jeremy, what am I watching? People, we have reached the peak of Mayberry Mountain. This is it. The second quarter of this game is the best you'll ever see Lee Mayberry play and the best it'll ever make you feel. Five points, six assists, a three-pointer. He's playing D. He's forcing turnovers. He's way, way better than Antonio Daniels in this quarter. And mark my words, you will never hear me say this again. It was a pleasure to watch Lee Mayberry play basketball this quarter. I mean, part of this comes down to the Grizzlies are canning long twos in a way that over the course of the season is unsustainable. Part of it is that the Detroit Pistons are not a good basketball team. But so often for the Grizzlies, the bench was not a strength for them whatsoever. They never over the course of their franchise really had a great Banks crew. This gave a lovely little like eight minute segment of what if, because you had uh, them attacking, you had Lynch up front, you had uh, Mayberry and uh, Edwards uh, b below. They were rotating the ball. Ugh. I mean, we're, I'm still in shock thinking about that being a possibility for Vancouver. The matchup the, the announcers had at the beginning of this game that they talked about had nothing to do with the bench. It was uh, Grant Hill versus Sharif Abdul-Rahim, and both of them are not doing good at all in this second quarter. Yeah, I mean, this this truly was, I mean, the, the narrative I was looking for in this game, you know, as we dig for them ever so deeply, was Otis Thorpe returns to Detroit, right? And this was the Otis Thorpe revenge quarter. 11 points, four rebounds on four or five shooting. Daniels give it up, wide open Thorpe jumper. You know he can stick that. Otis Thorpe has had a big second quarter. And it's Otis Thorpe and the Benchies. They are rocking and rolling, man. They are absolutely killing it. They score 29 of 33 Grizzlies points. Blue Edwards plays 12 minutes. George Lynch plays 12 minutes. Thorpe, nine and a half minutes. Mayberry, eight minutes. So they're out there pretty much the whole time. And we even hear from the announcer as, you know, Otis Thorpe is going to become my favorite Grizzly for two episodes here. But we find <laughs> out that he was actually getting over like a, a mild injury where he had a swollen lip because he got punched in the face three games ago by Charles Oakley. And I looked at the video for this and it came up right away. And this is like classic 90s basketball. Well, at least classic 90s New York Knicks basketball. Charles Oakley has a dirty flagrant foul from behind on Thorpe's head and back. Thorpe gives him a little elbow to the chest and Oakley absolutely just sucker punches him. Absolutely 
the dirtiest shit you'll see. But here is Thor bouncing back, having a massive quarter for the Grizzlies at his previous home and bringing the benchies along with him. Thorpe, in fact, gets an open two uh, with a couple minutes to go in the quarter, making it a seven-point Grizzlies lead all the way from being seven down to start it. Uh, but then Lindsey Hunter gets a long three. Daniels misses a one-hander at the buzzer. Grizzlies get 33 points in the second quarter, though. They lead 53-49 to 49 at the half. Things are looking great for them. It is fantastic Vancouver time, which means that we have to turn the tables a little bit for our halftime segment. What did Stu do now? <laughs> And you know, Jeremy, lots of the times the What Did Stu Do Now segment is not a happy time. It's a clear miss. It's a time where we rip out our hair and go, why did he do that? This time, we're going to focus a little bit, at least to start, on the positives in terms of things that he did at the beginning of the season that we didn't cover in our first episode because we were too busy dissecting the Otis Thorpe trade and the Antonio Daniels signing. But what he did on October 28, 1997, is he traded Roy Rogers just after one season that seemed sort of promising for the Grizz, away for a veteran, Tony Massenberg, and a second-round pick in 1999. And I gotta say, that's a tidy little bit of business. Well, you know what? I am going to have to leave this segment to you because in protest, I am not here for a <laughs> What Did Stu Do Now that highlights anything positive about our old GM. So, I don't know. Yes, Tony Massenberg came in for a couple of years and did a nice job for us. We haven't seen him yet, but uh, you know, you could have picked something else. Like, I know we commiserate on these things. I'm not trying to just, you know, point fingers or cast aspersions. <laughs> he did two things. He did two things that day though. And you want to bring up the second one. Okay. Well, I'm not sure if we're on the same one here, but the one that I came up with kind of going rogue here away from the teamwork of this podcast that we usually do is Doug Edwards. You remember Doug Edwards played 31 games. Yeah. I mean, we talked in the, yes, that six year contract. <laughs> exactly. He's still on the team after playing 31 games in the first season. He's still here 20 months later, getting paid $1.4 million that year. And Stu doesn't waive him until the new year, until 1998. So nearly two years of the Doug Edwards uh, tilt-a-whirl and uh, paying the guy millions of dollars, and he puts up 31 games for the Grizzlies. Thanks, Stu. But yeah, sorry, what were you saying? I mean, I... No. <laughs> I mean, the point is every time we have to pick a new thing that Stu has done. Otherwise, I'm just going to yell about Steve Nash That's every right. single That's episode. Right. Uh, but yeah, if you want to look at something that, you know, we talk about picking up a free second rounder uh, from a mediocre team such as Boston was in 1997 is uh, pretty smart. Trading away a second round pick is pretty silly at the same time. And that's what the Grizzlies did. And they did it for a defensible reason in some ways. They got Sam Mack, who was a good replacement for Peeler when he got injured. But you could also argue Peeler wasn't injured at the beginning of the season. And at the end of the day, getting a limited 27-year-old who's only 
threat is three-point range when it's not a era where three-pointers are usually utilized is not necessarily the greatest right but still overall those are i would call them like a b plus and c trade from Stu, which for him is amazing a plus plus really and it's, i'm really surprised to hear you say that sam max 27 because he looks about 35 out there by uh by i my... thought so as well i had to check and it's like okay i can see <laughs> i understand a little bit more now i understand a little bit more Okay, Stu, you win this round. <laughs> oh, there'll be opportunities <laughs> when we get to the Doug West We'll be trade. back. Time we'll be the... back. <laughs> it is time for the third quarter. The Grizzlies continue to be up, and we get the full Antonio Daniels experience for good and for bad in this quarter, Jeremy. Okay, I, I'll admit totally up front that my current knowledge of how things played out is influencing and plaguing my opinion and feelings towards Antonio Daniels of 1997. Um, that happens on this show. Here we are spending our lives dissecting things from 26 years ago. Um, but Antonio, da uh, Antonio Daniels is driving me fucking crazy in this game. There are, there are some high highs. <laughs> He's hitting a few shots. He's making a couple passes. And as we pointed out in the opening game, he's got that swagger, but the swagger's starting to wear my patience thin because this is a lot of puffed up fake swagger. It's really transparent and it's quite galling. He is not taking care of the ball. In this quarter, I'm really starting to feel unsafe with the ball in Antonio Daniels' hands. It feels like he doesn't really care for the ball. He's not sure whether it should go here or there or whether he cares to hold on to it or what. He has four turnovers in this game. And I feel like those four turnovers were quite egregious as well. And just a little advanced stats for you. His offensive rating in this game is 89, which you will very rarely see. And his defensive rating is 108, uh, box plus minus, minus 6.5. He does close out with 13, 4, and 2 and quite a memorable play that we'll get to. But... It's it's honestly really tough to watch, and it sticks out like a sore thumb just how out of place he is out here, even in this kind of ho-hum 90s level of basketball. And it made me sort of, you know, sometimes we're watching these games, comparing it to how we viewed these players when we were kids watching them for the yeah. first time. And I knew Antonio Daniels was technically bad, from looking at advanced stats, but I remember as a kid just loving his energy, loving his finger rolls and sort of janky shots, loving just like the youth and energy he brought and thinking, what did I miss? And the thing that I missed is, as you said, basically every possession, it's he's careening into the lane. He's palming the ball a lot. His shots, he rarely actually gets set. And you can really see that this is a guy that needed seasoning with a good team where he's only playing a protected seven, eight minutes a game. If he was going to get to that level of fundamentals in the NBA, that did, did not happen for the Grizzlies this uh, season. Because, yeah, we just have he boots it over and back. He gets a sloppy drive that's blocked. He palms it. But at the same time, in the same quarter, he gets a nice penetration and slot. He gets this weird right-hand banker at one point. I mean, you can see the potential, and you can see the agony all in one quarter. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because if as you speak, I'm kind of thinking to myself, there is something cultural in the NBA that even persists a bit less to this day, but... It was really, 
it was really noticeable back in the 90s and before, which was just if you draft someone early, they must play. Like you have to put them in. Whereas, mm -hmm. like take the NFL as a comparison, they'll draft a quarterback first overall and be like, okay, bro, like you're sitting on the sideline for two or three years. You're going to learn the ropes. I mean, not always, but they will do that. They'll be like, okay, mm -hmm. like you're our current starting quarterback is mediocre, but he's a seasoned veteran who's mediocre and you will learn from him. You will learn not to throw picks. You will learn not to make bad decisions. And in the NBA, maybe because it's, you know, smaller rosters, um, only two rounds in the draft, whatever it may be. It's like, all right, get out there, Antonio Daniels. We have to justify why we spent this pick on you. And he is so far from ready. Like, I know he was a senior at Bowling Green, but like he needed another year or like maybe he needed uh, another year at a, a major school or like whatever it was. He was just, I mean, he's so out of place and then I'll be forced to eat crow in about five minutes. Spoiler alert. Third quarter continues. Brian Williams gets two nice dunks back to back. Speaking of steel, Brian Williams. Dunks on Big Country. That's what uh, the biggest applause in the arena is when Rick Mahorn of the original... <laughs> yes, I'm glad you said it. ...gets into the game. This is not a pumped-up crowd. They are seeing a team they don't care about, and they are struggling through a couple quarters. Rick Mahorn does nothing in the game, mind you, but it's nice that he gets his cup of coffee for 91 seconds. Uh, Chilcutt gets a long two, cans it, and fouled. The Grizzlies end the quarter up 79-71. to 71. Uh, Nothing much happens in this quarter, but when you're already up by seven points, that's okay. It's a good feeling. Uh, the only thought I had as things kind of um, waxed and waned was, hey, that bench unit with Otis Thorpe was smoking in the second. Why don't we get back to that? We didn't quite get to it but we will coming up. So, but yeah, it felt good. It felt like a, a persistent effort. It felt like they were on the right track heading into the fourth quarter. And before we get to the fourth quarter, we have our perennial third quarter segment. Better know a grizzly. And Jeremy, this is a grizzly that we know pretty well at this point. We watched him dribble and dribble and dribble in the second season. We've watched him dribble and dribble and dribble in the third season. His name is Lee Mayberry, and we got to give him his due. Is that the word here? A little bit of a broader scope of what he brought to the NBA and brought to the Vancouver Grizzlies. Yeah, I'd like to rename this segment Lee Mayberry, a love story. And that's because, as you said, Lee Mayberry, he loves to dribble that old basketball dribble 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 he just pounds that sucker over and over and over again it's crazy man the amount we've watched this guy dribble the ball into the hardwood and go nowhere that aside let's talk a little bit about lee mayberry aside from his deep love for dribbling um four years at arkansas couple of uh, NBA teammates there at Arkansas, Todd Day and Oliver Miller. He was drafted by the Milwaukee Bucks in the first round of the 1992 draft, 23rd overall. He had four years with the Bucks, playing 328 games straight. Bit of an iron man, did not miss a game there. His career high for points came with the Bucks, 22 against the Seattle Supersonics in 1994. All told, his Vancouver Grizzlies career entailed 168 games, 4.7 points, 4.2 assists, 1.5 rebounds, one steal on 39% field goal shooting and 
percent three point shooting. Justin, really uninspiring stuff. Very Grizzlies esque. But can I take you to the advanced stats for a second in case you uh, weren't all oh, impressed? I, I was ready to go there, but please take the honors. <laughs> oh, thank you, thank you. I did the deep dive here. He's negative box plus minus in all negative in mm-hmm. all seven seasons he played. Uh, meaning, yes, negative offensive and defensive box plus minus. Negative VORP, value over replacement player, in six of seven seasons. And in our 97-98 year that we're covering now, defensive rating of 115, offensive rating of 101. Like, this is, I mean, we called those jerseys mid. I mean, this is way worse than mid. Mid would have been great for Lee Mayberry. Like, he had no business being that. Like, what What did he do to deserve seven years in the NBA? So so here's my theory. And, and you're right. Terrible advanced stats with the Bucks Get signed to a four-year deal to the Grizzlies because Stu Jackson is one of the worst 20 players by Vorp in his first season with the Grizzlies. Then gets to play just as much in the second. And he's one of the 20 worst players again. But here's why he got the minutes, I think. And part of it is he was meant to be a backup. Then Greg Anthony gets injured a lot in his first season with the Grizzlies. Then he doesn't trust Antonio Daniels. The team does in the second. So he gets too many minutes. But Lee Mayberry never really looks out of place, per se. He's never behind the play. He seems to be with it. One thing that's interesting, you know, for a point guard that's uh, with the ball as much as he does he only averages 1.7 turnovers in his first season with the team 2.2 uh in his second not the worst in the world he seems like a perfectly fine plug to put in there he would seem safe but he added nothing was the problem and we've seen too many games now to be looking back and realize that for a team that's supposed to be young that's supposed to be developing into something these were just nothing minutes given ultimately to a nothing player by this point and yet this is the situation with player management that vancouver forced themselves into not just for one season not just for two seasons they were going to do this for a third season until he got injured didn't play at all except for nine games and then was part of the Steve Francis trade simply for cap reasons. Yeah. I think there's some idea or understanding or thought that he's steady, you know, Mm -hmm. mediocre Mayberry. He's out there. He's, he's not hurting us. He's not helping us, but he's not hurting us. And it's like, no guys, he was doing not only nothing. He was hurting the team when he was out there. And, you know, it actually is a bit heartening to me to have dived into these advanced stats because that's what my eyes told me every single time I saw him on the court was, what are you doing, man? Why are you dribbling? Why aren't you moving? Why aren't you making anything happen? Why aren't you driving the lane? Why don't you even take an offensive foul to like make something happen, to, to inject some, some energy uh, into this game? And he just doesn't. And not only is he steady and mediocre, he's he's a bump on the log who's just not making things happen. And, I mean, we talked about whether players would translate to today's NBA. Zero percent chance Lee Mayberry plays now. We remember the Vancouver Grizzlies being bad for so many different reasons. We should remember them more being bad 
for players like Lee Mayberry, and Lee Mayberry was the most Lee Mayberry player Vancouver had. Moving on to the fourth quarter, the Grizzlies start out hot, George Lynch gets a fallaway shot, the lead is now 10, and now it's funny to see the announcers realize that they might lose not once, but twice to the Vancouver Grizzlies in one month. Yeah, they're horrified, and the one thing that they interestingly latch on to is they can't frickin' believe that George Lynch is hitting every shot. Mayberry gives it up. Lynch again. You gotta be kidding me. George Lynch, either he's become a tremendously improved shooter, or this is just his night. I've never seen him shoot the ball like that. And I guess they have a good stats guy, because at one point they say, and I, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but I think it was George Lynch is 11 for 16 in his last two games. And they can't, and it's true. He's hitting like 19 footer, 17 footer, 20 footer, foot on the line, three, uh, not three. But uh, they're just, their minds are being blown by George Lynch all of, all of a sudden showing up as this kind of elite jump shooter, which of course we all know he's not. But yeah, there's fear and horror and loathing in the voice of the announcers. Uh, but the Pistons start to make a little bit of a comeback. Grant Hill drives the lane for an easy layup. Hunter gets a bull drive, makes it as well. Though Country gets two nice turnarounds to restore that lead. But then the Grizzlies decide to go to the bench squad again. They decide to rely on the dynamic duo of Blue Edwards and Lee Mayberry once more. And this time it doesn't work out so good. Yeah, Blue Edwards... And when you and I talked about this, I was like, right away, first quarter, let's talk about how Blue Edwards looks. And you're like, let's wait till uh, a more higher <laughs> leverage moment, which was the, the right idea. But overall, he's just looking a bit old. He's looking like he's not moving that smoothly. Maybe a lingering injury. I don't know. Like the ass is looking bigger. He's just not, he's not flowing. Not that he was ever a super, uh, a super smooth player to start with, but the eye test was like, uh-oh, what's going on with Blue here? And in the fourth quarter, this is when this problem really starts to cause issues for the Grizzlies who are in the lead. But it was actually this massive comeback from the Pistons was kind of started by Blue Edwards with a turnover that leads to a Malik Seeley dunk, a turnover, an absolutely brutal turnover, and the, and the Pistons score again. And then... He's blocked on a drive by by Brian Williams, which actually I can't really blame Blue for because he took it pretty strong and it was a great block. But it was kind of those three plays in a row where you're like, why is the ball in his hands? Why are we letting this happen? And it was that kind of classic Grizzlies complacency in the fourth quarter that led to this massive Pistons run. Uh, and it's a 10 nothing run. They take the lead 93-91. Uh, then we get some spirited back and forth in uh, the final three minutes. After three and a half quarters of it being a meh game, this is the beauty of the NBA. The final two minutes can take you in it no matter what. We get Daniels with a clutch two to tie on some nice rotation. But then we get right after that a bad possession where he just uh, dribbles the ball aimlessly and then is woefully short on a long two. Hunter gets a wide open three. It's tied again. Reef gets a clutch long two to retake the lead. Lindsey Hunter makes two free throws. It's tied at 95. I'm not saying the teams are feeling it at this point, but these are interesting possessions. Yeah, that was where it got a little bit good. And I need to rewind just a little bit to a key moment that, of course, if you check the box score, 
if you just saw the result after the game, you wouldn't necessarily you wouldn't necessarily know happened. And it happened with four minutes left, and Otis Thorpe gets an entry pass into the post, and he's guarded by Brian Williams, who has been pounding the Grizzlies on both ends of the floor. Down deep, Otis Thorpe. Nowhere going. Oh, an elbow to Williams. It's got to be an offensive foul, and BW goes down in the heat. So they'll have to get Brian Williams off the floor now. And Otis kills the dribble and steps through with the ball above his head and absolutely clocks Williams with a stiff right elbow. And Williams is in a daze. He's checking his teeth and blood is leaking everywhere. And as was the rule at the time, the blood means he's out of the game. So now they've lost their best player this game from the four-minute mark, and he doesn't return till about 44 seconds left. And that is a huge deal for the Grizzlies. And you mentioned those Lindsey Hunter free throws. I did want to point out that that foul on Sharif was one of the most ghosty, nothing, non-fouls I've ever, ever seen. It was a missed shot, (laughs) and there's a loose ball in the key. And they show the replay, and it's just Sharif picking up the ball. He He doesn't even touch anyone. And then they give them, they gift them these free throws, and it's 95-95. And as you said, Antonio Daniels giving us headaches. He takes with 20 seconds left and the game on the line. It was an open look, but I would proffer a highly ill-advised three that absolutely clanks. And the Grizzlies get so lucky that it doesn't go off Blue Edwards. And frankly, I actually am not completely convinced it didn't go off Blue Edwards. I don't know how. You look at the angles, I don't know how they get the ball there, but they do. They get it back with 18 seconds, tie game. They can let out the shot clock at this point, and we get a very Vancouver Grizzlies possession, a very Antonio Daniels possession. Jeremy, take us through it. Okay, so the ball is uh, end out on the left side of the Pistons hoop. So the Grizzlies want to set up a double screen for Antonio Daniels. Oh my God, they're forcing it. But here we go. It's for Antonio Daniels. Sharif has the ball out of bounds. Country is on the block right in front of Sharif. Otis Thorpe, middle of the key. Antonio Daniels just inside the far elbow. They're kind of making a diagonal line. Blue Edwards is in the far corner. He's a decoy. It's a double screen from Otis and Country for Daniels. What's meant to happen, Justin, what's supposed to happen is AD (laughs) waits for the first screen, loses his guy a bit. Country should hit the trailing defender with a second pick. And then AD is open on the left wing to whatever he wants. Start a play, pick and roll, swing the ball, go from there. But this being the Vancouver Grizzlies, what happens instead is the play is terribly, pathetically executed. And it's mostly on Daniels. He doesn't fully wait for the first screen from Thorpe and Lindsey Hunter, a great defender, easily gets around it. Then the big boy comes in and sets one of the lazier screens you will ever see. He's a full second late and kind of just pretends to do it. Like it's almost like, whoops, I'm supposed to be screening. He doesn't commit to, he no, doesn't he's, commit to it, it at all. It literally is like a whoops. I'm supposed like, he just kind of like slides to the side. It's nothing. It does nothing at all. Not helping matters is the fact that instead of taking a sharp, direct line to the ball, Daniels takes a big, lackadaisical, looping line. And by that time, Lindsey Hunter has a full head of steam 
and is unimpeded due to country's non-participation in the plague. From the baseline, on sometimes a tough inbound. Daniels came three, stolen by Lindsey. Back by Abdul Rahim, though. Oh, man. How big would that have been? Lindsey nearly got it. And Lindsey had to be pried from the bench by the coach. He tips the ball and almost saves it to Grant Hill as he's falling out of bounds, but Sharif intercepts. He passes the ball out to Daniels on the perimeter. Bizarrely, as this gets stranger by the second, Lindsey Hunter, go! Yeah, yeah go, can go, I go, go. I would, let me Let me talk about this part. Lindsey Hunter has just jumped into his own team on the bench to try and salvage this ball, does so, and then... For whatever reason, for about four or five seconds, he's just sort of out of it. He is just like he's looking around for a mouth guard or something. He's sort of smiling. And it takes the players a couple seconds to go from like, oh, are you okay? To holy shit, the game is happening right now. And it's five. It's tied with 15 seconds left in the game. And we're suddenly four on five. Get back out there. And luckily, because it's Vancouver, they don't take advantage of that. Well, that's, I mean, that's what blew my mind. And so the replay shows. I actually think his hand was stuck in a folding chair because he hit a folding chair and it collapsed. And then his weights on the chair, which you could see like if your weights on a folding chair and you're trying to get your hand out of the top part, he legitimately was like, I'm stuck. And Doug Collins is like, what the fuck, man? Get out there. And then, but even crazier WTF is that Antonio Daniels, they have a five on four and he just dribbles. And it's like, okay, well, here comes Lindsay. It's like, it's almost like you're playing pickup with your friend and he falls and you're like, oh, did you scrape your knee? Like, hey man, come on back out here. Let's have some fun. And it's like, no man, you got to take advantage of this. Anyways, that's from 16 seconds left to 10 seconds left. So Daniels is waiting there. Now Thorpe comes up, sets a left side screen on Lindsay Hunter, who's now been through the ordeal of his life and that's so that AD can use his right hand, his strong hand, and drive to the middle. It's only seven seconds to go here. Here comes Daniels to the hole. Oh, he got it with 3.1 to go. The rookie on the drive. And the Pistons will inbound from midcourt, now trailing by two. He gets the corner off the screen on Hunter. He did wait for it this time. And he's going through the middle. But guess what, guys? Grant Hill is in perfect position to... Nope. Nope. <laughs> Grant Hill plays the weakest ass Matador defense you will ever see. He just lets him go. AD gets to the paint untouched and hits a six foot floater with three seconds left. Grizzlies up two. And it's one of those great Antonio Daniels vaguely circus shots. Did he need to do a floater like that off of one hand? No, but it looked cool. And nine-year-old Justin was like, this guy's <laughs> going to be a star. I don't know why nine-year-old Justin had a 70-year-old Borscht Belt voice. But be that as it may, the Grizzlies are up to now. However, there's 3.1 seconds left. The Pistons have one chance. And then a very Vancouver thing ends up happening to the Pistons at the end. Well, I mean, the first very Vancouver thing is by Vancouver, which is the Pistons inbound the ball and Sharif immediately fouls Grant Hill. Like the number one rule of that play, if you're in the penalty, is do not foul under any circumstance. And the funny thing is they don't show any replays and I actually don't think it was a foul, but it doesn't really matter. 
It was enough. Con it was it was enough contact when you're that far away from the three point line with three point one seconds left. Why? There's would you no reason. That? There's absolutely no reason for him. Grant Hill can't make anything from ten feet out at this game. I think he shot thirty five percent or something. Like, why bother with him out there? Don't worry about it. But no, he gives them two free throws to tie the game. Which you know, Grant Hill being uh, the star of all the Sprite commercials. Well, the, yeah, you know, the star of all the Sprite commercials uh, forced down my throat every day of my life when I was a young kid watching NBA action. Um, sorry, I couldn't stand Grant Hill growing up. I don't know why they wanted to shove that milk toast dude down my throat. Uh, there were so many better players that could have been like that A one for the NBA, and they chose him, and it drove me crazy. And so this was kind of fun for me to watch as he steps up to the free throw line with the game on the line, Justin. <laughs> and and uh, I think you know what happens here, dear viewers. He misses the first free throw. So the drama is out now. Now the question is, is he going to try and make the second one in a quick foul, or are they going to go for the intentional one right away? There's two seconds left, so you do have some options here. He intentionally misses the second one. The Pistons do sort of get the ball back, but they don't have enough time to make the shot. Grizzlies win, Grizzlies win, Grizzlies win, 97 to 95. Our Vancouver boys are now 7 and 11. Jeremy, this is a team on pace for 30 wins, which in Vancouver equivalent is like a three seed in the playoffs for our expectations. Things are looking good, unless you remember the fact that they were 14 for 25 on long two pointers this game, which is absolutely unsustainable for an entire season, and they were playing a mediocre team. But Grizzlies win! We're on track for 30, baby. 30 wins. Uh, you know, we shared a newspaper article where the headline was they could get to 20 this year. So we are exceeding expectations. We're out on the open road and just having the time of our lives. Let's go, Grizz. And on to the three stars. Justin? Uh, you know, for the third star, I'm going to go with uh, Sharif Abdurrahim. You know, this was a quiet game for him. We barely talked about him. Nice change of pace after lots of games where we've really broken down how he's come into the league. This one, even though he's never really the focal point, 19 points on a very tidy 7 for 9 shooting, 6 rebounds, 4 assists. You know, when you're a great player, you still deliver the stats, even in games that you're not really dominant in. Second star, we got to go with Brian Williams. 11 for 17 shooting just so looked dominant looked like the best player on the court for long stretches uh, of the game again you really have to go what if with his entire career second start him and first you know just for the narrative of the game it was his game back in Detroit after getting traded when he didn't want to get traded this was a statement game for Otis Thorpe he 15 points 10 rebounds, gets that elbow in Brian Williams at a key point in the game, intentional or not, <laughs> sets that screen for AD uh, for the game-winning basket. This is as high as the Otis Thorpe experience got for the Vancouver Grizzlies, and what a nice way for him to have a game against his old team like that. Nice. Okay, so we have two of the three the same. Uh, not exactly the same, two of the three in the three stars. I have Brian Williams as the third star. I have the big boy, Bryant Reeves as the second star. He scored eight points in the fourth quarter. Most of them came early on, but those were super key because that's just before the Pistons went on their massive run. He finishes 18 points, eight rebounds, three assists on eight of 14 shooting. Really enjoyed the big boy today. And same as you, Otis Thorpe, first star. That 
is unanimous. Otis Thorpe didn't want to go to Vancouver. He talked about wanting to get a trade, but at this point, the Grizzlies have a nice bench that is doing interesting things. They got starters that are really contributing, and they're on pace for 30, maybe 35 wins, a fifth of the way through the season. Is this the turning point for Vancouver? Can they turn to a somewhat competitive team where we can start thinking maybe even the next year playoffs? We will see. I love your fake cliffhangers. So good. And with that. This has been with the second pick, Steve Francis. I'm Jeremy Allingham for Justin McElroy. We will be back with game three of the 97-98 season, which will be. Stockton, Malone. It's the Western champion jazz. Can Vancouver be competitive? That's coming up next time. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Well, I don't know.